And uh, Luke is a really, I'm really glad we have Luke. Actually, uh, the book of Luke is, we believe, is written by a guy named Luke, okay? And he's, uh, he's actually recognized as the only Gentile writer that we know of in the New Testament. Um, he writes two books. He writes the book of Luke and he writes Acts. A lot of people believe that they actually traveled together as an early history, not only of the time Jesus walked on the earth, but also of the early church. Um, we see that Luke is um, probably not there. Because you think about, where do we get the nativity from. That when we talk about the birth of Christ, we read about that in Luke 2. I personally believe Luke interviewed Mary. He got that directly from her, I think, and, and definitely with God's inspiration through that. But we see that Luke is an investigative writer. We see that he's also a physician, but he is a Gentile writer as well. And his two books represent almost a third of the New Testament. Now, Paul wrote at least 13 books, we believe, in the New Testament. We know of 13 books. And uh, even though he wrote nearly half of the books in the New Testament, Luke is recognized for writing almost a third of the New Testament because of the length of the books that he wrote. Um, he's written it to a guy named Theophilus. Now, we don't know if Theophilus is an actual guy, or it could be a title representing um, loved by God. So it would be addressing, um, addressing it to all believers. But both Luke and Acts were written around A.D. 60, A.D. 63. You think about that, that's, that's 30 years after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection that he's writing this book. And so what an amaz amazing thing that we get to jump into this. And as we look at chapter 18, let's think about what's going on in chapter 18 at this time. Because where are we at on this? Jesus has left Capernaum and he has turned his face to Jerusalem. He's turned his face to the cross, and he's taken that path. He's getting his last times in with his apostles. He's sharing specific things with them to teach them, to prepare them, to train them, to carry the message forward. And so we see that today. This is an important parable for us to pay attention to. As we look at parables, what is a parable? As we think about this study, I've always heard it said that a parable is an earthly story with a godly or heavenly meaning. And, uh, and I think there's a lot of truth to that. Our, our senior pastor, Chris Wall, says it this way, that a parable is to cast alongside a biblical truth or a godly truth to say, this is what that godly or biblical truth is like, just to help explain it. And so we see parables in that way. Um, there's a few other definitions I just want to share with you real quick as we get into this word. Um, righteousness. Righteousness is the definition, the quality of being morally right or justifiable and specifically before God the Father, okay? That's righteousness. Justification. By trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, the Father declares you righteous. You are justified before the Father because of what Jesus did. We have to place our trust in Him. We'll talk about that a little bit more later. Imputed righteousness. God puts his righteousness on you like a robe. Not only does he declare you righteous, but he imputes righteousness on you. You are covered in his righteousness. Not in our own. It's because of him and his faithfulness. Grace is another term. We talk about that a lot, meaning unmerited favor. It means that you are getting something that you don't deserve. It's kind of like a birthday present, okay? Um, actually, isn't it interesting on birthdays that we celebrate our birthdays, but shouldn't we be celebrating the mom? <laughs> Who did all the work that day? <laughs> it seems like to me, uh, my mom uh, paid the price 58 years ago, so good for her. <laughs> but uh, but uh, I'm the one that gets the presents on that day. That's all right. Mercy, another term, not getting what we do deserve. 
Our pastors have encouraged us to memorize scripture, and, and th through this passage, we are memorizing Luke chapter 8, verses 9 and 10. It says this, And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But the... But, uh, I'm sorry, uh, let me back up here. Uh, yeah, to know this king, uh, the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others, they are parables so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. God wants us to understand these parables so that we can apply them to our lives. It's really important as Christians, we are called to be disciples of Jesus Christ. These parables are valuable to equip and train us to be successful in our walk with Him. So let me ask you something as we get ready to turn our face to Luke 18. You know, if you are breathing today, you have history. You have experiences. And those history and that, that experiences, those experiences have impacted you both positively and negatively. Um, they help us to build who we are. It helps us to identify our perspective and it shapes us. But through those experiences, we start to build if-then reasoning. That if-then reasoning is... If this happens, then this will follow, right? And we kind of start to jump to conclusions in that way. But one of the challenges, too, is through that, we start to do that with people around us. We start to jump to conclusions about those around us. And we have to watch out for that part of it. And I think that's part of what we're going to see today as we, as we read through this part of it. So um, today, when you look at this, we're going to see the Pharisee and the tax collector. What do you think of when you think of the Pharisee and the tax collector? I mean, it's going to be different, but if you grew up in the church, you think of the Pharisee as the villain, right? He's the bad guy because they're always mean to Jesus and his disciples. But then you think about the tax collector, and I think about the tax collector as, well, that guy's a sinner. He's an outcast, but Jesus loves him, and there's hope for me in that. What a blessed thing for us to think about that. We're going to think also about what, are they, what did those two positions mean in that day, and we'll get into that here in a second. So if you would, stand with me in the reading of God's Word and... Um, we're going to read Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. It says here, starting in verse 9, He also told this parable to some who were trusting in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And this is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Please be seated. So as we get into this, we're going to just jump right in into verse 9. It tells us this. Um, it's talking about this self-righteousness. He says in verse 9, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Luke tells us in this why Jesus told the parable. That he had people with him who were looking down on other people, who were living in their own self-righteousness. And, and uh, so these people are doing that then. Think about that, that God 
Jesus is telling this parable because of those around him. Self-righteousness is having faith in your own goodness, losing sight of your own depravity and sin. This leads us to pride and the original sin. It also leads us to arrogance. Even as disciples of Christ Jesus, we must stay alert to these as these sins easily sneak up on us. And before we know it, we're over our heads in it. So it's important that we pay attention. We keep our red flags open, uh, looking for self-righteousness in our lives. What does the Bible say about self-righteousness? Romans 3, 10 through 12 tells us this. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So that's Romans 3, 10 through 12, where Paul is saying that, but he's quoting uh, Psalms 14, uh, 1 through 3, and Psalms 53, 1 through 3. We also see in Isaiah 64, 6, Isaiah 64, 6 says this, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Some of your translations may say filthy rags. It goes on to say, we all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. And that's in Isaiah 64, 6. When we practice self-righteousness, then we are comparing ourselves with others based on our own scale of righteousness. The challenge with that is our own scale is not built of absolutes. It's built on our own perspective. It's built on our own experiences. And it changes always. Where God's word is built on absolutes. And so our own perspectives, our own history become our problem. We have to watch out for that. Self-righteousness causes us to despise God's creation, those he loves. Hey, seven signs that, that, you, uh, you know, that we see that we're judging others came from Pastor J.D. Greer. Uh, he is currently the, pa- the current president of the Southern Baptist Convention. But he had these seven signs. Seven signs that you're judging others. Number one. You are more enraged at someone else's sin than you are embarrassed by your own. You are more enraged by someone else's sin than you are embarrassed by your own. Think about how many times that's even happened. Now, I think about that in my, lo- my own life, and I'll share more about that here in a little bit. But Number two, you refuse to forgive. And when you do forgive, you refuse to forget. You refuse to forgive other people. You know what? That's, and that, what a challenge for us because we've been forgiven much. And who much is forgiven, you know, we should be doing the same thing as well. Um, the third reason, third sign that you're judging others, you cut off those who disagree with you. Now, I don't know about you, but you can listen to news radio all day long and they're cutting off people all day long. That's not what we're called to do, though, is to be like that. And, and are, you, uh, are you the one who says, you know what, your, your opinion doesn't matter? We are starting to form judgment. We are self, uh, being self-righteous in saying that. The fourth sign is that you gossip. And gossip is just saying, you know, do you know what this guy over here is doing? We've already started. Can you smell the judgment just in saying, do you know what he's doing over there? I mean, that's just, that's part of what the problem is for us. We've got to make sure a sign there, you gossip. Number five, you refuse to receive criticism. You, in other words, my way is the right way and there's no other way to go. You refuse to receive criticism. Number six, you refuse to correct someone's position. And this leads into the, 
the seventh point, but you refuse to correct someone's position. In other words, they're not worth it. Let them do what they want to do. I don't care. And what a tragedy for us to think that as believers in Christ. If, we, if you truly understand the grace of God, what a tragedy. Because the last one says this, you write someone off as hopeless. You know what's a blessing to us is that Jesus Christ did not write us off. And we are not to write anybody else off. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, Judge others makes us, or judging others makes us blind, whereas love is illuminating. By judging others, we blind ourselves to our own evil and to the grace which others are just as entitled to as we are. Bonhoeffer also said, Nothing that we despise in other men is inherently absent from ourselves. We must learn to regard people less in light of what they do or don't do and more in light of what they suffer. J.D. Greer, who had those seven signs you're judging people, also quotes Bonhoeffer in this way. He says, One of the first signs of Christian maturity is a frustration with the hypocrisy of the church and a desire to separate from it. But the next sign of growth is recognizing that the same hypocrisy in the church is present in oneself. Is that true for us today? And it is. I mean, if you really, if you, if you don't think that, just spend a little time on it and it'll get to you. <laughs> I promise you it'll work it out. Um, but this is like everything in relationship to our uh, relationship with God. It's a heart issue. It all has to do with what starts right here in our heart. If your heart of hearts, if you look down on anyone, you may be the only one who knows it. No matter how subtle or how you might think you are concealing it, you are practicing self-righteousness. So let me ask you a few questions, if I could, real quick, and then we're going to step into the rest of the passage. How is your heart before God? Are you trusting in your own good works, in your own righteousness? Do you look down on anyone? Have you lost sight of your own depravity and sin? If so then this is the time for you to confess and repent, to turn away from your own self-righteousness and turn to righteousness God gives in Christ Jesus alone. As we go on in the passage, Luke chapter 18 verse 10 tells us this. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One is a Pharisee, the other is a tax collector. So let's talk about this for just a second. Who are the Pharisees? I mean, Pharisees started with a really good thing in mind. Um, keep in mind, in the history of Israel and of, of Judah, they get carried off into captivity. And why? Because they did not follow what God had in mind for them. They did not worship God alone. They did other things, and so God disciplined them by carrying them off into captivity. They did not pay attention to the Word of God. In fact, you can read about this in the Old Testament, where someone reads the Word of, the God, word of God, and they're like, Wow, we never heard that before. And it's like, really? <laughs> I mean, that's what we're supposed to be doing. All the time, but we hear here that the Pharisees come back, they're back in Israel, and they say, you know what, no matter what, we're going to make sure that we keep the Word of God in front of us, we're going to make sure we worship God. So these guys are religious leaders. They start off with a really good thing going. Um, but in the process of all this, you end up with 613 laws that they got to keep. That's like ridiculous, right? I don't know about you guys, but the Ten Commandments are hard enough by themselves. Um, I, I have a friend in a Sunday school class back up in Owasso, and, and he was sharing the gospel with a Jewish guy, and the Jewish guy said, you know, I would love to be a Christian because then I only have to keep 10 
commandments. I don't have to keep the 613. And I love what my friend said. He, he said, I can't even keep one. It's only because of the grace of Jesus Christ that he has saved us through that. And thank you, Lord, for that. So the Pharisees are that. But who are the tax collectors? The tax collectors are Jews, they're Israelites, who have become friends with the Romans. They are stealing from their own countrymen, and they're becoming very wealthy. And so when you see this, we see two things. We see a Pharisee. They're honored and respected. We see the, uh, we see the tax collector who's despised who is an outcast, who is um, a traitor. We see the Pharisee who is devoted to God, but we see the Pharisee, who, I mean the uh, tax collector, who is devoted to self. We see uh, the Pharisee who is a saint set apart for God. We see over here the tax collector who is, um, who is a sinner, not even worthy of our time. And we think about that. Don't we affiliate with the sinner? I don't know about you guys, but that's kind of my natural thing is to go... I'm kind of like the tax collector. And when I started studying this passage, I was like, yeah, this is easy. I'm the tax collector. Well, I'm going to share the rest of the story with you soon, so we'll catch up with that here soon. Um, As we get into this, let's look at the Pharisee first. And we're going to see this in verse 11 and 12. It says, the Pharisee, and this is what he's doing. He's standing over by himself. He's standing by himself. And I think he's doing it this way, so if you'll indulge me. He says, he prays this thus. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give uh, tithes of all that I get. I mean, can you hear the contempt and disdain that this guy's saying? Can you hear the arrogance and pride coming from him? And I know that's a little bit of an exaggeration, but do we do that today? Maybe we're not quite that bold about it. But this guy's standing by himself in this parable, and he's saying, I'm not like this tax collector. I'm not like that. And so he's lifted himself up. Do you know the Bible tells us the ground is level at the foot of the cross? That we are all at the same level. There is no hierarchy when it comes to this. But this Pharisee has set that up. um, So we see that he's not only is he prideful and arrogant, but he's thankful for himself. Thank you, Lord, that I'm not like these other guys. My goodness, what a, what a tragedy for us to get to that point, to ever think that our righteousness rests on us. No, no, it's not that. And so we go on here, we see a couple of things. Can, um, we see that the Bible tells us this, Proverbs 16, 18. Proverbs 16, 18 tells us this. Pride comes before destruction and an arrogant spirit before a fall. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 Um, says, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. Be careful when you stand, lest you fall. Pride in our arrogance equals rebellion against God. So anytime we are exercising, we are covered up in pride and arrogance, it equals rebellion against God. Those are huge red flags for us that we should heed as warning signs and take appropriate action. Pride and arrogance are paths that lead us deeper into sin. These are heart conditions. If you choose this path, you might as well prepare for the consequences of your choices as God's word shows us in, to be faithful and true. God disciplines those he loves. Hebrews 12, 6 says this, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So if I can say this, if you belong to Christ and choose to practice self-righteousness, 
you need to get ready because there's a humbling coming. The Bible tells us that he chastises and eventually scourges. Now, I don't know if you know what scourge means, but it actually means to remove the hide from. You talk about something that would be painful, right? So it's my prayer that I would pick it up in the chastising, right? I wanna, I'd like to get back on track quicker than not. But um, look at that. It's going to be a humbling coming. Have you ever heard it's easier to feed yourself crow than it is to be force-fed crow? And definitely, God's going to work in our lives. If you belong to him, I promise you, and you practice self-righteousness, I promise you this. He is going to, he's going to humble you. He's going to come to you. Chapter uh, 18, verse 13 tells us this. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Is that what we are? And we are, guys. We're all sinners. And we're all saved by grace. But we see in verse 14, Jesus says this, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The tax collector here is very aware of his sin, and humility is the character trait of someone who knows their need for grace. When you know the grace of God, it radically changes you. So when we get into self-righteousness and we build pride, we are losing sight of God's grace. We have to get back to that point of it. If we understand it, then um, we can get back into that grace. We get back to that real relationship we're in with Christ. Oswald Chambers said this in his, um, my utmost for his highest. Repentance does not bring a sense of sin, but a sense of unutterable unworthiness. When I repent, I realize that I am utterly helpless. I know all through me that I am not worthy even to bear his shoes. Have I repented like that? Or is there a lingering suggestion of standing up for myself? The reason God cannot come into my life is because I am not through into repentance. James 4, 6 says this, But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And James is quoting Proverbs 3.34. It's actually quoted also in 1 Peter 5, 5 and 7. But, um, but I'm going to move through that just for the sake of time. Um, humility is having an honest estimate of ourselves before God. We show false humility when we project negative worth on our abilities and efforts. Have you ever heard somebody say that? Well, I'm just not worth anything. I'm, I'm terrible and all that stuff. Well, that's not humility. We're drawing attention to ourselves, and humility does not draw attention to itself. Um, but we can take the other side of that. That pendulum can swing too far. So we have to watch out for that. But it says here, we show pride when we inflate the value of our efforts to, or look down on others. True humility seeks to view our character and accomplishments honestly. I have a couple of passages in the Bible that are just... Favorites, although whatever I'm studying at the time becomes my favorite. I don't know about you guys, but as you get into God's Word, it just is so alive. And it's interesting that I've been a believer for a long time, and, and I've read it I don't know how many times, but then you read it and you're like, wow, where was that before? And it's kind of like that to me. It's just that alive and active. But um, some of my favorite passages include Hebrews 12, 1 through 3, or Romans 12, 1 and 2. But as you see in Romans 12, 3, we're going to see, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. 
So the secret for us is that we have godly humility, not self-righteousness. We saw earlier, I'm going to go back to verse 9. And you saw earlier that it says here that... Um, It said, let me just read it. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And so when I see this, I have to think, okay, these are people that are with him. These are people walking with Jesus as they're heading through. You know what's another really interesting deal is a side note. Um, and those who know me know that I chase rabbits. If I was a bird dog, you would have shot me by now. But the, the really cool thing here is that he's talking about the tax collector and the Pharisee. In chapter 18. You know who he meets in Luke 19? Zacchaeus. As he walks through Jericho. On his way to Jerusalem. He comes across Zacchaeus. So that's kind of a cool deal. And who is Zacchaeus? But he was the tax collector, right? What a blessing. I wonder if when Jesus is telling this parable. He's thinking about Zacchaeus. You know, he... Maybe so. I don't know. But also think about those that were with him. What if it was Peter? Peter, who we see as this super apostle. And, and you can say whatever you want about Peter, but when Jesus is walking on the water, at least Peter got out of the boat. Okay, Nobody else did. Now he sank pretty soon, right? He took his eyes off Christ and he fell. He sank into the water. And he said, save me, Jesus. And he does. But also we see Peter, and a lot of us can affiliate or assimilate with Peter in that um, he's bold and arrogant in what he says. Sometimes we say things that we shouldn't say. And some things we think things we shouldn't say. But I wonder if it's for Peter's sake that he shares this, this uh, parable. I also think if I had been there. Would he have been talking to me with this parable? Can you relate to these two men? The Pharisee and the tax collector? It says that these guys look down on people with contempt. Do we do that? You know, it's varying degrees. We can be really strong in it. We cannot. We, we got to go to Israel last year, and um, it was amazing to me at the Holocaust Museum. They have these pictures of Holocaust victims, but they also have pictures of these uh, German officers. And how many of the German officers are pastors who are carrying out those orders? Holy smokes. I mean, and they're talking down on, on Jews, right? What a tough one. I quoted Bonhoeffer earlier. That was his time period. He was there during that time. He's a young guy, but he stands up against that. And he ends up dying in 1944 um, because of that. He gets taken to prison and, and is taken out. So he becomes a martyr. But we see also um, in verse 14... Jesus says the tax collector left justified. Justification is what happens to us when we place our trust in Christ alone for our salvation. This is a personal decision. You must come to a point where you recognize your depravity and sin, that you are without hope. And I've heard it said, you know, there's this uh, wide road. Have you ever seen the picture where there's this highway that's leading down and all these people are going this way and there's a path that goes off and it's a very narrow path and those are the ones that are going God's way. Um, I've heard that that gate is a narrow gate. In fact, it's very much like a turnstile. Only one can go through at a time. You can't go through because your friend's going through at the same time. It's an individual deal. It's because of what God is doing in your heart. And if we see that we are without hope, then the gospel becomes good news. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4 tells us this, For I delivered to you as of first importance... 
what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried and He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Jesus came to this earth. He was 100% God, 100% man. He was the perfect sacrifice, lived a perfect life, and He is the only one who could do it. He died on a cross for your sins and my sins. He was um, what we call the propitiation, the payment in full for our sin. But we also see that he was buried. Not only did he pay for our sin, but he was buried and rose on the third day, defeating death. So because of Jesus, we have eternal life. By trusting in Christ alone, you are declared righteous before God the Father. And he imputes or puts his righteousness on you. You become a new creation. Now, I've been a believer for a while. And I know the Bible tells me I'm a new creation. But there's a lot of times I go out into this world and I don't act like I'm a new creation. Is that, is that because I'm not? And it's because I'm not living up to what God has called me. Same for all of us. We are called as a new creation. Do we trust Him? Or are we going to trust what this world has to say about us? Have you come to a point in your life, like the tax collector, where you recognize your need for a Savior? Have you placed your trust alone in Christ Jesus for your forgiveness of sins and for eternal life. Or maybe you're like the Pharisee. Maybe you have trusted in Christ, um, but you see tendencies in your life of judgment of others and self-righteousness. The Bible tells us that our own righteousness is as filthy rags. We have to recognize what God has done for us, humble ourselves before God, consider His tremendous grace that He's extended to us, and turn to Christ. As I, I was telling you earlier, I think about, as I studied this passage, yeah, I'm the tax collector. You know what? We're all the tax collector. We're all sinners, and we're only saved by grace. But as I studied this more and more, God really brought to mind, as I went through the week, just digesting this word, thinking about it, how many times I'm the Pharisee? How many times am I jumping to conclusions? Have you ever listened to J. Vernon McGee? I love what he has to say about this. He passed away in 1988, but he's still on the radio every day. So it must be radio stations in heaven, but um, that's a good thing. <laughs> but uh, I, I love listening to him, but he's, he has a couple of things that he says. One of them is that the only exercise most Christians get is running down their friends and jumping to conclusions. You know? and, and I think, well, you know, aren't we guilty of that? We have to watch out for that and make sure that we're exhorting and building up each other. Um, okay, uh, Psalms 139, 23 and 24 tells us this. And this is my prayer for us today. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. It could be that you, you might feel like you're the Pharisee and trusting in your own works to be in a right relationship with God. The Bible tells us in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for it is by grace you are saved through faith and that not of yourselves is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. We are not saved by our own righteousness. There is nothing we can do about it. We have to trust in Christ alone. He's the one who took care of it. All religions in the world point to the fact of man trying to reach God. Christianity says God reached down to man. And all we have to do is trust in him. There is nothing we can do to establish a relationship with God. God himself establishes it and carries out the plan, reaching down to save us. He is the one 
who saves us through the washing and rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Whenever God speaks, you should move. You may, you may need to come down front and talk to somebody. You might have some questions. Or it may be that you're like, you know, God, I, I really need to pray. And these altars are open on either side here. Just please feel free to do that. It could be that you're, you don't want to do either one of those, but you're like, i, I got to do something. Pray where you're at. But let me ask you this too. Would you look at the person next to you and just say, I wonder if they're struggling. And if they are, would you offer to help them? Hey, I'll go down front with you if you want. Hey, I'll go pray with you if you want, or I'll pray right here with you. So I want to ask us as we go into this time of just uh, thinking about what God's done for us. Um, let's think about what God has in mind for us to do. What is he calling you to do? So I'm going to ask you to stand. I want to pray over us, and we'll have a short invitation here as we discuss this, but, or as we walk through this part of it. What's God doing in your life? So, Father, we come before you. I thank you, Lord. Thank you that you are God. I thank you that you are the one that formed the plan, that you are sovereign and over all things. Lord, we thank you that you are our Savior. We thank you for your grace and mercy you extend to us. Thank you that you paid the price for our sin, and you have redeemed us back to you, Lord, and you cover us. Declare us and cover us in your righteousness. Lord, I pray that you'd work in our lives now, that your word has fallen on fertile ground, that you would just show each of us what you have in mind for each of us to do. I pray that you would search us, O God, and know our hearts. Test us and know our anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in us and lead us in the way everlasting. Lord, may you be glorified and honored in all that is said and done. In Jesus' name, amen.